This is the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for finding us. You're listening to the one-on-one podcast. I am the Doc, John Macaroon. Joining me, George Icorn, longtime executive director of the Detroit Sports Broadcasters Association. And the way I became in contact with George is via our Twitter platform at Detroit Podcast. As you guys know, I'm tweeting out constantly, you know, having a good time, breaking down sports news, releasing daily podcasts. And all of a sudden, I started seeing a series of likes on our content, and it was George. And I seen his background, and when I read his resume, it just lit off uh, red alarms in my mind. And I said, oh my goodness, I want to have a conversation with George Icorn regarding his journalism career and his work with the DSBA. George, welcome to the Sterling Heights studio. I appreciate Thank you, your time. Doc. It's good to be here. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. So, you came in contact with us via the Twitter platform. What did you think of Isn't all that, that stuff? amazing? Social media. Yeah, and uh, you guys are doing a great job here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my career and uh, what I've been up to and all that. I do have to uh, mention to you right on the outset, though, uh, we have changed now to Detroit Sports Media from Detroit Sports Broadcasters Association, and that was a huge change. That happened, John, about uh, back in July, and Trevor Thompson as our president, but uh, we'll talk more about that, but... uh, Detroit sports broadcaster is kind of evolving into Detroit sports media. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Did you grow up in the Metro Detroit area? Yes. Yeah. Born and raised in Detroit. I grew up in the city on the east side. Went to Denby High School. And the funny thing is, uh, I was not an athlete at all. I mean, I love sports. I love sports from since I was a little boy growing up in that house on Duchess in Detroit. But I never, ever thought that I would be this close to sports as a writer, as a broadcaster, as an executive director. So when I grew up in Detroit, uh, I, I didn't come from a sports family. My older brother loved cars. My sisters, nah, not really into sports at that time. My dad, though, loved sports. So I got to thank my dad, George, and, of course, my mother. They're both gone. and uh, But they really were an inspiration to me because they let me watch sports on television and go to games and all that at a very young age. Growing up in Metro Detroit, what were some of your early sports memories? Who did you look up to? Oh, of course, the big ones were of uh, Dave Bing for the Pistons, um, Joe Schmidt from the Lions, and then Greg Landry, the quarterback, uh, Al Kaline and Willie Horton from the Tigers, and the Red Wings was Gordie Howe, of course, number nine, and and with him, uh, Ted Lindsay and Alex Delvecchio. So that that was my my core era when I was growing up. Those guys were still around and still playing, and uh, I looked up to them quite a bit. And from a sports casting side, I always admired guys like Dave Dials, Al Ackerman, uh, Van Patrick, and Ernie Harwell. What about them drew you in? Was it the, the way they broadcast games? A lot of people that sit in your chair today will tell me, you know what, I would do play-by-play along with them. And a lot of people that wanted to get into broadcast journalism always had the notion that potentially they could be the next Ernie Harwell. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the fact that I was so big on radio, so I heard the play-by-play of Harwell and of Van Patrick and the Lions, and then, of course, the Red Wings had Bud Lynch and Bruce Martin. And I think that that kind of drew me in thinking that, um, yeah, I'd like to be that someday. But then also, I have to add, Doc, that I was also attracted to the print side. 
So the fact that we got both newspapers delivered to our house and I read the news in Free Press and admired Jerry Green and Joe Falls and some of those great sports writers that we had back then. So I had a dual kind of career thing going, not just broadcast, but also the print side too, because I admired both of those professions. In Metro Detroit, obviously, a rich history in terms of our sports teams. What championship back in the day stuck to you? What memories do you still have to this day? Well, um, I, I first of all, I got to tell you, this is a, a little side joke that I tell people. I say, you know, people will go around and say that the Lions haven't won anything in my lifetime. Well, I got news for you and your listeners that the Lions did win in my lifetime. And I was one year old and I tell people that I was sitting on daddy's lap. Because in 1957, they defeated the Cleveland Browns, and I was alive, and I was there. Now, do I know for a fact I was on his lap? No, of course not. But it's kind of a a funny thing that I tell people that in my lifetime, believe it or not, yes, the Lions did win one, but you got to go back 60 years, uh, 61 years, whatever. So that one, of course, I have no memory of. You know, I'm just joking with you on that and your listeners. The Tigers of 68, of course. But take it back one year before that, they came really close in 1967. And I'll never forget, they had back-to-back doubleheaders in the last weekend of the season due to some rainouts. And it was a three-way race between the Red Sox, the Twins, and the Tigers in 67. And I can still remember with the kids on my block listening to those games on the radio with Ernie Harwell and Ray Lane and trying to root those Tigers. It went down to the last game of the season, and the Tigers could not sweep the doubleheader they were playing, and so we lost out to Boston that year in 67. In 68, of course, I have more memories with guys like McLean and Lolich and Sparma and Don Wirt and K-Line and Northrup and Stanley. I can name all those guys from 68. That was what really stuck with me, 68's Tiger Championship. Take me through that moment when... The final out happens. What was it like for you in that household? How did you experience it being about nine or 10 years old? Yeah, uh, that's a good question that you asked, Doc, because uh, in 68, I was at a parochial high school. I'm sorry, grade school. So I was in grade school and they allowed us to watch the games on television. They had black and white televisions and the nuns there and some of the lay teachers, we had a few lay teachers, allowed us to watch the game. But school was dismissed, of course, before three o'clock. So those were all afternoon World Series games, as you know, in 1968. And so I went home then and watched the rest of the game on my home television set with my parents and and brother and sisters. What I did was I I got kind of really crazy after that last out and uh, that pop-up that uh, was caught by uh, catcher Bill Freehand, and then he he grabbed Mickey Lolich, and Lolich jumped into his arms, as a lot of your listeners might remember. And so then... I ran outside, Uh, the kids on the block ran outside, and I had put together a little um, banner, a little sign, if you will, that had some bumper stickers. They were, the the bumper stickers were really big back then in the 60s, and what they had was a a series of different kind of bumper stickers, because the Tigers were winning the pennant, and they were beating the Cardinals in the World Series. So I put this little handmade sign together and then ran out to the street on my block, just a regular city block, and then, uh, you know, the uh, Stelzers and uh, the other fa- uh, you know, families in the, in the neighborhood all ran out too. So we did like our little celebration with this little stick sign I had. And then from there, we walked over 
to a little shopping mall at the corner of Kelly and Houston Whittier, and we kind of heard horns going, and we held our little signs up and all that. So we did. A, that was a, the extent of our celebration. We weren't old enough, anywhere near old enough to drive back then. Okay, take me through your education and early on when you were in college or university, what were your early goals in terms of potentially what you wanted to do in the field that you chose? Well, at, uh, going back to high school, at Denby High School, a great high school on the northeast side of Detroit, I was uh, on the uh, yearbook staff and on the newspaper staff. So I really sunk my teeth into writing back at an early age. Wasn't in broadcasting at all in high school. Uh, and I might add that I really, really encourage listeners and the young guys and ladies today, take the bull by the horns and please get involved in your high school broadcasts. It's very, very important, and that's one of the things that the Detroit Sports Media, formerly DSBA, that we stress is the kids' involvement. So after high school, went to Wayne State University. My degree was in mass communications, and electronic journalism was my, uh, my specialty field, and I loved it because it was a combination of both writing and broadcasting. It was a perfect fit for me. It was almost like they designed that curriculum for George Eichhorn. Uh, because I got a chance to uh, experience both the writing side, as in news writing, news editing, and then I took classes that were the broadcast side, which was a radio studio or a television studio. So it was a great, great field, perfect for me, because I still couldn't decide which fork on the road I was going to go down, Doc, as far as radio or newspapers. While at Wayne State University, I had two special and great opportunities. Number one, the Detroit Monitor newspaper, their sports editor was um, going to University of Michigan and he didn't have enough time to continue to be the sports editor and columnist. So I, on, a, on, a, on just a, a whim, uh, sent an article and Horace Mann, God bless him, uh, decided to take me up on it. He liked my writing skills and that led me into a career from 1979 until this day today. I'm still running. Now it's called the Downtown Monitor newspaper. The other opportunity I got was there was a posting for an opening as the Wayne State football broadcaster, play-by-play. I had never done play-by-play in my life. So what I did was I ran to I ran to Tiger Stadium with a microphone and a recorder, sat in the stands. I remember the Tigers were playing Chicago, the White Sox, and a pitcher named Wilbur Wood for the White Sox was pitching. I don't even remember who was pitching for the Tigers, but I do remember Wilbur Wood was pitching for the White Sox. So I did a demo tape. I did a demo tape, get this, for a football job calling a baseball game. And it worked, Doc. It worked. Wayne State loved me. They loved my ability to call play-by-play for football. And uh, from there, uh, I I had a nice three-year run at WDET, the public radio station in Detroit, is the one that broadcasts the football games. Who were some of the early mentors that helped shape you as a writer and a broadcaster? Oh, boy. Uh, that's a tough one. I know, like I mentioned, Horace Mann, as far as a writer goes. Um, another couple of writer friends of mine that were really good were Tony DeMarco. Tony lives in Arizona now. And Mark Pattison, he's a writer in Washington, D.C. Um, on the broadcast side, you know, Ron Cameron, who has a sports broadcast show and has been on sports talk radio for a long, long time. Uh, was a mentor of mine. And of course, I, I did become friends with Ernie Harwell. Ernie Harwell was like a coach and a mentor to me as well. There were probably several others in the business. I always admired Paul Carey, the late Paul Carey, former Detroit Tigers announcer as well. 
And then more recently, I've been uh, blessed with working with a lot of these guys that have become presidents of our association, such as Ken Cal, Jim Branstad, or Rich Kincaid, Trevor Thompson, and guys like that. In 1980, you had the opportunity to cover the Winter Olympic Games. What a memory, because everybody that talks about it, being there at Lake Placid, will rave about it. What was that experience like for you? It was just tremendous. Thanks for bringing that up. And that is, I'll tell you and your listeners right now, the number one sports highlight of my lifetime, of course. The fact that me and my girlfriend were able to um, plan this trip, first of all, uh, as as fans, I want to let you know, I did not get a media credential. I was not credentialed at all. This was as a couple, uh, an engaged couple, me and my future wife, and we planned this trip, and we had to order just like the fans had to order tickets in advance, and what they do is you you pick out different events you want to see. We wanted to see the big ones. We wanted to see the ceremonies. We wanted to see uh, figure skating. We wanted to see hockey. Well, when our tickets came back in the mail, we got a string of events that they allowed us to purchase. Some of them we didn't even ask for, like men's luge, for example. But it was still fun to watch. Alpine skiing was not fun. So anyways, we get these tickets, and we got two hockey, two, two hockey games. One was uh, one of the preliminary around, around, which was earlier in the week, let's say, of this week, the finals week, if you will. Of We went the final week of the Olympics. It was over two weeks long. So long story short, the first game was two teams from Europe. The second we had no idea who was going to play on that Friday night game. Um, so we're there Monday, you know, watching this other hockey game. And then as I, as, as I was looking through the newspaper and that in our hotel room, I said to my girlfriend, I said, you know, honey, I said, I'm looking at this schedule here. And it looks to me like the United States has a chance to play in this game on Friday night. We're probably going to maybe be able to see Team USA. Should they be able to get through the other couple of round games? Sure enough. Who do they who do who do we have tickets for? USA against the Soviet Union and uh, the Miracle on Ice game. Unbelievable! We had wonderful seats. I again had a little homemade banner. My sister Pam made this little Hello ABC banner. And uh, then though, at that time, Doc, I was working for Ron Cameron over at WXYZ Radio at the time it was called, and I was his producer. So Ron made an agreement with me and I with him that I would call in updates to that game. This was not an easy task because there were no cell phones. I had no access to the press box because I had no media credential. I had to literally run and find a payphone to call Ron at the end of each period, as I promised, because I don't know if you remember this, but Channel 7 and ABC decided not to show that game live on a Friday at 5 o'clock because it was news block time and local programming. So they kept the score hidden from the listeners. Not Ron, though. He was on the radio side, and he had my reports live, broadcast live, and I was so excited because at the end of that game, just before he went off the air close to 8 o'clock, I was able to relay to him and to the rest of the Detroit listeners that we indeed had won the Miracle on Ice game. What a thrill and what an outstanding uh, uh, opportunity for me in it. George has also had the opportunity to cover the Olympics, Super Bowls, the World Series, NBA Finals, Stanley Cup Finals, Bowl Games, All-Star Games, U.S. Open, PGA Championship, Frozen Four, Gold Cup races, <laughs> and other sporting events. You, when you look back on your career and reflect on the things that you have covered, do you say to yourself, wow, I've really done quite a bit in terms of accomplishing the goals that I had set out to do? Yeah, yeah, and I and I do, I do Doc, because um, I haven't been – 
with major outlets. Okay, so for me, the Detroit Monitor is a small newspaper. Uh, yes, I was with WXYZ Radio at one time and CKLW and another small station called WCAR in Garden City. Oh, and one more, WBRB in Mount Clements. So I'm just saying that I established, I I think, uh, in in the eyes of those that grant those kind of credentials, I established a reputation that I'm very proud of. And the fact that I was able to cover those events, and I got to put a plug in for another young man that's sitting down in uh, Deerfield Beach, Florida, a friend of mine, uh, Scott Morganroth. And Scott, I was his mentor. And Scott and I together have covered for the Detroit Monitor all of these major events and what a thrill it's been. Two Super Bowls for me. I went to one in Atlanta, the the one where the Rams won, which was a very, very down-to-the-wire game, unbelievable at, at the Georgia Dome, and of course the Jerome Bettis Bowl, I call it, and the Steelers, and now they're coming back. Uh, but anyways, Ford Field uh, hosted, as you know, the Super Bowl, and uh, I, I got a chance to cover that as well. World Series, of course, uh, 06 and 12. Uh, I covered both the Tigers in those two World Series. All-Star Game at Comerica Park, and uh, and like you said, uh, the Stanley Cup Finals, of course, gosh, the Red Wings, and what thrills they gave us, the Pistons, uh, the back-to-back titles, and then the other t- title with the Pistons, uh, able to see that. So I, I've, I've mainly concentrated on the professional sports, and uh, I haven't done a whole lot with college football except for uh, a few games in Ann Arbor and East Lansing, and then, the, the, of course, the bowl games in Detroit. As a writer, help my audience, um, for those that maybe have not read your work, describe your style, your writing style. Well, I like to give them a little something different, a little something, uh, the opinions they may not have heard before. You know, it, we can't compete with the daily newspaper. So I, 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 it would be foolish for me to write like game stories, you know, that the Tigers won this game five to four and that sort of thing. No, I would have to write more or less about capture the moment, capture the scene, capture the fans, capture what's going on, the excitement and really bring them a different side of and a perspective. And I know Scott Morganroth, my partner down in Florida, he does the same thing. Because, uh, again, as I said, we don't work for a daily paper. I don't work for a daily radio station. So when I do my coverage, I want to give them a perspective that perhaps they haven't seen before. A lot of our audience are young students, interns, that enjoy this kind of coverage and talks with broadcast professionals, writers like yourself. If you could speak to them and give them a few lessons as an established writer— what can you tell them in terms of some things maybe they can do to advance their career or to potentially, you know, work their way up from, you know, a student until, you know, somebody who's in the field? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, I think that the young people today have an enormous opportunity. Uh, I've even heard stories of some kids in elementary school that are are starting to do play-by-play, even if they do it to themselves or with, a, uh, with their own recorder, I mean, at a game. Um, the high school opportunities, I tell you, if your high school does not have a broadcast program right now, take the initiative, talk to your faculty, talk to your principal, talk to your athletic director, and try to make it happen. We have a couple of foundations I want to make a mention of here, not only the Detroit Sports Media Organization I belong to, but the Student Broadcast Foundation, a uh, dear friend of mine, Tom Langle, uh, is the head of that. And there are opportunities, and with the Michigan High School Athletic Association, with, with Jim Johnson, there are a lot of opportunities for students out there in high schools. And I ask you to try to uh, feel the moment and try to capture it. Uh, don't necessarily go for the glamorous jobs like play-by-play. Oh, i got to be a play-by-play announcer. Learn as much as you can. 
learn about production, learn about engineering, learn about sideline reporting, learn about statistics. Statistics are very important. Every good play-by-play man or woman needs a statistician at his or her right-hand side. So take the opportunity to learn as much as you can, you young uh, future aspiring broadcasters out there, and, and, and be involved in as much as you can and do it in, at an early age. Like you told me earlier, you were part of a smaller newspaper, but I'm, I'm assuming you took pride in your work. But what were other challenges that you faced as a writer potentially not working at a major newspaper? What other things did you find to be a struggle in your field? Well, one of them, of course, was access. Uh, yes. I'm not going to deny it. Uh, you know, the, it, it took me a long time to, uh, to be granted locker room access. And uh, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a knock on, on my small newspaper. It's just that they, uh, they take a limit and they, and, they, and they look at the size of the publication or the size of the radio station, et cetera. And unfortunately, for a lot of events, they have to draw the line somewhere, so to speak. So um, World Series and the playoffs is a little bit different because at least they bring the athletes, as you know, into a media room. And there are interviews with the managers and with the key players. And, of course, hockey does that with the, with the playoffs and the NBA. They all do it now. But what I'm saying here is that there are challenges that you have to overcome um, for a long time. Um, you know, some of the teams in town I won't mention, but they did not want to even give the Detroit Monitor access so you have to keep fighting and you have to keep showing and demonstrating what you're doing. And just like we were talking off air, there are opportunities for Detroit sports podcast and, and, and growing opportunities that make your awareness even more so here in Metro Detroit. I respect greatly what you told me and the audience because for a podcast, what we have to do is establish what we are because we're considered non-traditional media. So for us, it's educating PR staff and facing a bunch of hurdles, but I respect what you told me in that you got to keep going. You can't you can't allow a negative email or rejection, you know, to allow you to say, okay, you know, we're just a podcast. No, no my thinking no. is always, you know what, I'm going to pester you. I'm going to email you because someone had once said, you know, a PR staff person, I think from the Horizon League told me, he's like, look, ask all you want. The worst they're going to say is no. Yes, and that's yeah. the worst we faced, which is, look, you, we only have, we have a certain limit. Look, you guys are just a podcast or things like that. And we say, look, here's what we've established. Here's what we can bring to the table. Here's how we can help enhance some coverage and provide it in a different way. Yeah, exactly. And that's a great attitude you have and your staff has here. And that is the thing you have to do. Never take no for an answer. Keep persistent. Keep going forward. There are things that uh, Scott Morganroth and I have covered that I would probably have never imagined. And there are things that we you know, haven't been able to crack yet. I'll be honest with you. But I mean, you know, uh, it, it's 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 just a it's a it's a wide open field out there. Pardon the pun, playing field, but it is. And these are new media. This is new media. Podcasts are here to stay. They're going to be around forever. And it's a new media that uh, the teams may not like all the opinions. Okay, well, you're not able to control all the opinions that come across these microphones. And I think that the teams must understand that that it is not in the best interest to control everything like perhaps some would like to do. So even in the past, you faced that teams wanting to control the message and not allowing potentially some negative thoughts or opinions be expressed. That's right. That's right. It happens. And you know what? I think it's gotten a lot better. I think it really has. Um, you know, it's amazing even in our own town how much things have changed over the years. But uh, uh, the, the fact that uh, the PR person should n- not totally be 
a goody goody person, but uh, he has to or she has to take a hard line in certain situations. But the bottom line is, is that we're here to do a job. They're here to do their job, but they have to assist the media in whatever way possible. Now, George, set the scene for me. Super Bowl is coming to Detroit. It's going to be a massive thing at Ford Field. What was it like and what experiences did you have covering the Super Bowl with the Pittsburgh Steelers and uh, the Seattle Seahawks? Well, it was a great opportunity for me personally. Um, I did not stay in the Media Center Hotel downtown, of course, but I only lived, yeah, 20 minutes from downtown at the time. So, of course, I commuted, but it was a great thing. It started with the uh, Media Day, which, as you know, is a circus and has become more and more a circus at the Super Bowl. I think uh, to a detriment, really, uh, some of the characters, I'm sorry, reporters, not characters, that show up and ask questions. So all I'm saying is that that is a huge event. You have to go to that, of course, as a media member, and that's the Media Day, which uh, leads up to the game. Um, they were they treated us very well. They had news conferences. The Renaissance Center did a terrific job as the host of the media. Um, they had terrific uh, uh, meals. I, I remember what they did was a Michigan theme to all the press uh, meals that they had for us leading up to the game. They and I thought it was real smart on their part. The host committee had a Michigan theme with the uh, different food and that sort of thing. The game, the preparations, the NFL does a terrific job, of course. Uh, with Radio Row and all the interview opportunities that are there for the broadcasters. And of course, one of the highlights I always like is the Hall of Fame announcement, which comes out on that Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl. And you, you know you're going to have six or seven Hall of Famers in your midst to ask questions of. And then, of course, after the game, it's uh, very uh, organized, very organized. The NFL, the interviews, uh, separate stations where we could interview the, the players of the game, if you will, from Seattle and Pittsburgh. I think Detroit just did a tremendous job. Transportation-wise, there were a couple of issues, but all in all, I think we did a terrific job. And as you know, they're trying to get one again. Um, they haven't officially submitted a bid, but they've inquired with the league, uh, the Detroit host, well, the Detroit Sports Commission, really, it's called. But anyways, um, my hope is that, especially with all the millions and millions of dollars of renovations at Ford Field, that we are going to get one again, I hope. At this point in time, take me through your work currently in this day and age in 2017. Well, a lot of my work is centered around, I, as I mentioned earlier, I still write for the Downtown Monitor, which is a sport, which is a news and sports publication that comes out weekly. Um, on the radio side, I'm heavily involved as executive director of the Detroit Sports Media, uh, formerly known as Detroit Sports Broadcasters. And we have about 150 members, um, and those range from student members all the way to professionals like Eli Zarrett, Frank Beckman. Uh, Jim Brandstatter and Ken Cal and, uh, and Dan Miller and all the rest of them. So we have a gamut of student members all the way to people that have been in the profession. How could I forget George Blaha? My gosh, been in the profession over 45 years. So it's a great organization. I encourage people to join, and I'm not just trying to, to ask for money, but I'm. I, it's a good networking opportunity for students and people of your age and older. And also the Detroit sports media uh, has wonderful opportunities to give grants. And we, we reach out to the student broadcasters that need money for equipment, for example, for their football broadcast or basketball broadcast. We also work with Specs Howard and we award three, three or four scholarships for the students at Specs Howard after they're interviewed by us and they submit a, a grant application. So this is tuition assistance that we offer for four, you know, four, three or four students at Specs Howard. So we're trying to give back to the community. We're trying to use the sports persona of 
the Ken Cals, the Ken Daniels, the Jim Branstaders, the Dan Millers, to get them involved with student broadcasting and student journalism. So I'm, I'm very involved in that. Trevor Thompson is our president. Bill Harrington is our marketing director. And we just have a great set of officers with Jim Ryan, Bill Wishman, and Sherry Hendrinos and Vicki Foley. So uh, it's a great board to work with, and I really enjoy doing that. That occupies most of my time. Excellent. Now, have you had the opportunity to do some long-form feature pieces on those in the sports community here in town or nationally? Uh, no, not really. Um, the, the, the longest when I, when I was younger, I did more long form. Uh, for example, one of the things I was really proud of, Doc, was I got Steve Garagiola and Joe Garagiola together. And as far as I knew, I was the only sports person in this town that was able to bring both of them, father and son, together. Joe was in town for a Detroit Tigers game on NBC. And Steve, of course, at the time was sportscaster at Channel 7, WXYZ. And uh, I, I was able to work it out. I'll, I'll never forget that day that we went to Joe's hotel near the airport, Metro Airport. And uh, it was a great, great time I had sharing their life and the father and the son. The, 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 I could see the love and the friendship and the, and the mentoring that went on between Joe and his son, Steve. And that one was really, you talk about a long form, that was a lengthy piece I wrote for the Detroit Monitor and uh, for a freelance publication I wrote for at the time. Now, being an experienced writer, so what is it like when you survey the landscape now in terms of writing for a newspaper, in terms of what you see now versus what you've seen in the past? Well, yeah, I got to admire the guys nowadays because yes. I, I tell you what, uh, the, the and, and I don't mean this against anybody, but uh, the old school guys have a tougher time now because of social media. And with your, if you're Chris McCoskey or Anthony Fennick and you're covering the Tigers, no, you're not just sitting there and typing one story to submit after the game or running down, plus running down for interviews. Don't get me wrong. That's part of it. No, you've got a tweet, Twitter, you got Facebook, you got all these other things going on, social media, and the fans are out there demanding it. The young people, the millennials, all the people out there that love social media, love podcasts, for example, you all are demanding that of the current broadcasters or writers. Now, it's a little bit different if you're on the air. Of course, if you're Mario Pemba or Dan Dickerson, you're, you're not going to be having the time to tweet during the game. But what they do is usually have somebody there in the booth with them to help with that process. For example, Courtney Welch of uh, Fox Sports Detroit, she does a lot of tweeting from a lot of the games that she also covers. But um, as far as the writers go, it's a whole new ball game. Again, they have to be so up on social media and their editors want that. And then not only that, but they're doing a lot of video work too. I've seen a lot of that, which is good. Dave Burkett will sit down with um, uh, Carlos uh, from the Free Press after the Lions game. And maybe Sean Windsor will be there with them. Uh, you know, Wojciechowski, Wojo will do it with John Nio and uh, Ted Colfin, and they'll preview the Red Wings season. I think that's great. I think the newspapers had to find, a, had to recreate themselves in such a way, in such a manner that now they are using alternative terms of, uh, of broadcast media, such as video and, and social media. So it, it, that's why I'm saying it, it's a much tougher profession to answer your question originally than what I got started. 
And now what we're seeing is a little bit of um, maybe, you know, a reduction in the field of newspapers. You see, you hear about layoffs quite a bit. But now on the other side of it, there is a new model that is taking shape called The Athletic. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yes. But yeah, the new model is potentially to let's just go right to the consumer and kind of tailor our coverage more long form, less advertising per se on the website and go to directly to the consumer. What are your thoughts on The Athletic, and do you find that potentially this could be a a new sustaining model? Because on our end, I understand that model because we started an independent broadcast network ourselves here. So if I appreciate long form, I admire long form, but I'm not sure if the young people of today will take to that. And my my concern is that it's, it's a now, 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 me, me, me generation, short, short, direct, direct. So what you have is a long form taking more time. So the older people, I think, are more apt to do that. I'm not convinced that the younger people will take to that. But I do admire the athletic. And I always admired these sports magazines. And there were Mm -hmm. a number of them that popped up, as you know, in Metro Detroit over the past 20 years. Unfortunately, they all fell. They all folded. But I gave, and I wrote for some of them. And I always gave those publications credit. Uh, Cameron had one called Sports Fans Journal, and we loved writing for him. His, it really wasn't long form. Uh, his columns were not really super long. But the magazines that came out, a guy named Tim Grand, I remember when Tim had his magazine in town. I think of long form as very enlightening and, um, again, maybe a little bit more suited for middle age to older. I'm not sure. But I do wish them the best of success, The Athletic, and I do. And I sincerely mean that. And I'm hoping that more and more people do read it and follow. Yeah, like you said, you're a board member of several media groups in town. And so if you were to sit down with editors, with a bunch of writers from the print, and you were to have a symposium and a discussion regarding how to advance the field of print journalism, what kind of advice or what kind of thoughts would you have regarding seeing newspapers continue to evolve? Because I don't like to hear the narrative potentially that – in 50 years, there won't be any newspapers because I'm one of, you know, I'm still an individual that when I was 15 years old, how I experienced news was through the newspaper. My dad would get the Sunday paper thrown to the house. He'd go get it. You know, he'd be like, son, let's go. Let's have a chat. And he'd read the politics section. I just rip, <laughs> rip I'd rip out the sports section. Yep. And that was my you thing. Sound so, like, you sound like me, doc, growing up. You yeah. Know, I don't want it to me. go away. I don't want it to go away either. And, uh, First of all, what I would advise them is, again, as I mentioned earlier, is to keep looking for new opportunities in the newspaper business. Don't think one-dimensional. The problem is is that they're not getting enough advertising. They're not able to get the pages that they used to have, the content, Mm -hmm. because of the fact that they're not getting enough ads. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm happy, but I'm shocked that Detroit is still a two-newspaper town. I really am. I, there have been rumors for years and years and years, and as you know, we're under we're under a joint operating agreement with the Free Press and the News, and there have been rumors for years that one of them was going to fold. So far, it hasn't happened. Under the joint operating agreement, the Detroit News, of course, does not publish on Sunday. I don't like that. I wish we had a Sunday News and a Sunday Free Press. But in that being said, I do commend both newspapers for continuing to reach out into the community. One of the things is a small thing that I like is that you walk into Comerica Park on a, on a weekday and you can get a free copy of the Detroit News. And I, I guess I never thought I would see that day. Uh, number one is it must cost a lot of money to do that. And number two, uh, they're not being bought by the, the Detroit Tigers. So Wojo and, and, and McCoskey and before that Tom Gage and all those writers and, and Lynn Henning, 
can say whatever they want about the team, and yet they're they're having the faith in them to have their newspapers uh, picked up. Uh, I think they should do more of that. I, you can't give away all newspapers free, but you got to stop raising the price. A dollar fifty for a daily paper, I'm sorry, is is really getting high, and really. There's a lot of people out there that are scared off by that buck fifty. I'm telling you right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the only way they can bring that down is if they get more advertising. So I guess it's a plea for both community community involvement as well as newspapers to be successful. Now, George Icorn has won numerous broadcasting and writing awards, written books, but an honor that really stuck out to me, and I love to hear about it, is in July of 1984, you were invited to the White House by the President of the United States. Ronald Reagan. Yes. Set the um, scene. Take me through that. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you what. It, you have to turn the clock back to November of, of 83. November of 83, I had another distinct honor. I was invited to preview the Winter Olympics in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia, with a contingent of media from around the United States. I was invited by ABC Sports. And so during that trip, I had a conversation with a man who is a White House and a sports photographer. So he does politics and news and sports. And distinguished gentleman, I can't even remember his name. And I said to him, I made a comment to him that President Reagan loves to have these what he called regional press conferences. The president did not go to Chicago or New York or L.A. He used the word regional for right there at the White House. What he was was what he wanted to do is Reagan wanted to feel the pulse of what's going on around the nation by inviting broadcasters and newspaper columnists from those outlying cities to Washington and hosting them. So uh, on a whim, I sent a letter to the White House press office and I said, I write for the Detroit Monitor. Uh, We're a weekly paper and I would like to know if there's any opportunity to ever be considered, please let me know. Well, I didn't expect anything. I got an answer. I got an answer. And I got an answer from a lady who had some roots to the Detroit area. And so she said in the letter that you can be rest assured I will consider your application when the president decides to have a Midwest regional press day. Oh, that was pretty optimistic, huh? Oh, I don't know what went on, but probably about a, you know several months went by afterwards. I got a telegram. This is when telegrams were still sent out, Doc. I got a telegram from the White House the press secretary, Larry Speaks, inviting me to, in July of 84, to the White House, representing the Detroit Monitor, and uh, I had to make all the arrangements, the travel arrangements, et cetera, et cetera, on my own. And uh, what an unbelievable experience. So that set the stage. I accepted the invitation. I made my travel arrangements, and we began the day with um, a series of press briefings, I would call them, of uh, the agricultural secretary, for example, because we were a Midwest a group of uh, reporters, uh, the national security advisor, Bud, Bud McFarlane, who later got in some hot water trouble for uh, that Iran-Contra scandal, as you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so several uh, administration sp- officials spoke to us during the day. Well, I got to tell you this. During the day, when they spoke to us, the, the lady gets up from the press office and she makes an announcement. She says, I want to see the following people up to the front of the room. And I'm thinking, What? She's calling people up to the front of the room. Are we in a, some kind of security uh, clearance issue here or what? So I go, she, my name was called. My name was called. So I went up during the break in these presentations in this auditorium, and I go up to the front of the room, and she says, George, it's a pleasure to meet you. I guess it pays to know somebody. You'll be sitting at table number one with the president for lunch today. Unbelievable. 
I get back to my seat. There's a the broadcaster uh, from Pittsburgh's radio station next to me. He goes, hey, buddy. He says, what they want you for? What they what they say? I says, well, I got to tell you, they told me I'm going to sit with the president of the United States for lunch. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know how else to tell him, you know, in, in a straight face, you know, quite an honor. So uh, my little connection that this press officer made with my newspaper uh, resulted in me sitting with Reagan. And um, uh, actually, there were four of us total, four of us total, plus the president and plus uh, Mary Spath, her name was, from uh, Larry Speaks staff. So uh, that was a, it was a great opportunity. Now, back in the day, the Pistons would play at Kobo, the Tigers at the old Tiger Stadium. Looking at it now, where you have the four major teams in a downtown area within two or three blocks, it is vastly impressive. It's improved. But do you still miss some of those old afternoon ball games, Tiger Stadium, oh, or some yeah. of those great memories at Tiger oh, Stadium? Yeah. What is it like nowadays with the advancement of technology versus when you used to go to games in the 70s or 80s? Yeah, of course. Now, one of the things that I'm not a big fan of is all the entertainment, all the loud music, all the noise, all the interviews in the stands, contests and all that. It's, a, it's you know, you got to accept it. It's it's it's. The, the old days are gone forever that you're just going to have a little bit of music playing or a band or or an organist playing, for example, although I am glad that the Red Wings have added an organ at Little Caesars Arena. The, those are those are doc those are those stadiums Tiger Stadium Olympia Stadium Cobo Arena um, and then of course the Lions played at Tiger Stadium too I was a season ticket holder at the at the time when they played outdoors I do miss that I do I do those those type of arenas will never be recreated uh, don't get me wrong they've done a wonderful job Comerica Park Ford Field and Little Caesars but uh, it's it's not the same as when I was growing up not the same not the same. <laughs> but at the same time, like you said, everything does have to evolve. Yes, it does. And in, it does. And, in, and, and in this day and age, it is big money sports, and you have to kind of keep up with the Joneses as well in terms of across the country, these stadiums are popping up all over. Yeah. And, what, what, and the thing is, is that the entertainment has changed so much. It's now an entertainment slash sports event because they want to keep people occupied. They want to keep you engaged. They want to have sidelight things for you to do. Well, you see what's happened at Little Caesars Arena, empty seats, because people are, now again, this is a new arena, so let's wait a while. Let's wait. Maybe we might have to wait a whole season, but with people wandering around the concourse, and I call the shopping mall at Little Caesars Arena, it's costing you because people are not in the seats. They're checking everything else out. In 2003, you penned a book entitled Detroit Sports Broadcasters on the Air, and the late Ernie Harwell wrote the foreword for it. What was that process like for you, and did you enjoy the process of writing the book? Yes, I sure did. It was a wonderful experience. Thanks for asking, Doc. Um, What I had is an accumulation of photographs, because when I was uh, writing, I I used to write two columns for the uh, Detroit Monitor. One was sports on television, and one was my column, my weekly column. So on sports on television, that meant that I was covering the broadcasters, which was really exciting because I had access to photographs from ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, Pro-Am Sports in Detroit, and the local teams. So I, I was able to uh, build up a library of all these photographs. They were all black and white, by the way. But <laughs> uh, So I kept all these photographs. I didn't, you know, they, they were given to me. Uh, copies of the different announcers and their photographs and then working in Al, Al Michaels and Kurt Gowdy and Ernie Harwell and George Kell and all these announcers. So uh, one day I saw these books. It's it's by Arcadia Publishing, and um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a series of books that uh, highlights the history of 
It could be a town, the history of Clawson. It could be religious structures in Detroit. It could be the history of the mafia in Detroit. But I brought to the idea of them, well, why don't you let me give you on speculation a, a concept I have for a book on the history of broadcasters, sports broadcasters in Detroit and Michigan, because we have such a wealth of history. And thank goodness that Arcadia uh, Publishing in North Carolina loved the idea. And uh, so uh, I published this book, as you mentioned, in the early 2000s, and uh, we sold over 15,000 copies. So I'm really happy with it. People can still get it. If you want to uh, look it up online, uh, you can order it from Arcadia or from Amazon. It's called Detroit Sports Broadcasters on the Air. <laughs> you can follow George on Twitter at DSBA2, DetroitSportsMedia.com, and we'll get George out of here on this. You got four tickets. Any sporting event, any time period, you can take three people with you. What sporting event, and where do you go? Well, I'm going to take with you. I'm going to have to go to a Lions game. Um, the Lions are, um, uh, they've always been, obviously, one of my favorites, and uh, uh, the atmosphere at Ford Field is remarkable. I love it there. And uh, so I would have to take that. Of course, I got to take my wife, Sue. She has to go with me. And then, um, I don't know, it's going to be a fight because I've got three sisters and a brother. <laughs> so maybe we'll have to draw cards or something like that to uh, to see which of those four siblings of mine will go with me. But I think with my wife and then the two of my siblings would be a great, uh, great time to go. And again, uh, I would pick Ford Field for the electricity and the excitement right now. Time flies when you're having fun. And thank you for spending this hour with us. We greatly appreciate your time, George. Oh, thank you very much, Doc. Great to be here. And that was George Icorn, Detroit Sports Media. We thank him so much for his time and insights. If you enjoyed this podcast and you've enjoyed the other podcasts on this fine network, definitely check us out. And the free and easy way to support us is to check out our website, DetroitSportsPodcast.com.